Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Captivating Fictions. All of our music comes from Tim Byrne, saxophonist, composer, and record label owner, who claims he had no interest in playing an instrument until he attended college. We range across multiple albums and band lineups. The pieces come from Visitation Rites, Claws and Reflect, Diminutive Mysteries, Sacred Vows, Sanctified Dreams, and Preemptive Denial. Our guest today, Talia Field, is an acclaimed experimental novelist, essayist, and poet, modes of writing she often combines in one text. It's also likely that historical figures, philosophers, or dog trainers will walk onto the page to be the connective tissue between multiple distinct texts that span decades. In what follows, we'll hear Field talk about one piece of her writing as a braid of texts or voices. And today, Interchange attempts a kind of mimicry. We'll look at three books that form a trilogy of investigation and creation, Bird Lovers, Backyard, Experimental Animals, and most recently, Personhood, just published by New Directions. The first and third might be characterized as elastically essayistic, and the middle text is a novel, though subtitled Reality Fiction. Experimental Animals, published by Solid Objects, explores the origins of both experimental literature and modern experimental biomedicine based on the marriage of Claude and Fanny Bernard. The novel also features women activists who have been overlooked in science history and focuses particularly on the living animal body in pain, vivisection, as foundational to the history of physiology. All three books are connected by explorations on science, philosophy, and identity. And with the most recent, personhood, the consideration of how beings as selves are entangled in ways that call into question the arbitrariness and cruelty of human classifications and value hierarchies. The cast of characters we'll meet includes Claude Bernard, the French father of physiology and experimental medicine, vile practitioner of vivisection, Anna Kingsford, medical doctor and anti-vivisectionist, Conrad Lorenz, Austrian father of animal behaviorism and Nazi bird lover, Vicky Hearn, dog trainer and philosopher, Happy the elephant, and Adam the parrot. Throughout, we'll hear excerpts from all three books read by the author. And now, Captivating Fictions with Talia Field on Interchange on WFHB. Bird Lover's Backyard is first, Experimental Animals second, and then Personhood in terms of the this particular group of books. Two books are fairly similar, obviously, and then the, the central, the center book, Experimental Animals, is a different beast in a sense. Yeah, so actually, I mean, it was interesting that you brought up chronology because I worked on experimental animals for almost 17 years of work, um, and over the course of that time, a lot of, um, I did a lot of other, other thinking, other questions, and it wasn't immediately clear to me which, which questions, which inquiries sort of stuck together and which were sort of separate. Um, and when it came to really starting to pull anim- uh, experimental animals together, I realized actually that I couldn't move on the enormity of that book until I wrote some and, and got some other pieces sort of off the table. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, Bird Lovers emerged out of the, all of the work I was doing in that time period. Um, and I pulled that, that collection together in, in order in some ways to sort of do it justice and then to be able to do experimental animals justice um, because I needed to, I needed to tease them 
apart because they were asking very different kinds of questions related, but but different around animal-human relationships. 17 years is a long time, but uh, why not? I mean, you're you're working in, in this space and trying to craft something that has great meaning. Well, yeah, especially that book, Experimental Animals, which was so archive-based. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to be able, to, of course, to go in person to France, to all of the many, many archives that I used to, to get the information for that book. Um, so it just took, yeah, it was a very long labor of love and and the questions I was thinking about, the kinds of the, the, the legacy of our relationship to animals um, that in some ways emerged from that period, you know, it was a combination of the legacy of that plus other thinking that I had already been doing um, around different moments in the history of science in particular, different ways that narrative work when it comes to animal-human relationships. And I realized that it was too much all messed up uh, together. And that's why the, the different books emerged. And of course, personhood kind of picks up in some ways, some of the pieces in personhood pick up where Bird Lovers uh, leaves off as a collection and continues uh, some of the lines of inquiry that that book was was engaged in. Having read uh, Bird Lovers Backyard last and having just finished it, um, it's freshest in my mind, but also interestingly um, connected to my own reading. And again, this show I've had, um, I don't know if you know or not, Colin Dayan on... Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah, and who, of course, uh, relies heavily on Vicki Hearn's work exactly. uh, also. And so it was a pleasure to, you know, read that piece in particular uh, on, on Vicki Hearn and her thinking. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that just because it was okay. fun to me and it was right there. You know, it's right there. It's fresh in my mind. And this will help, I think, um, also in terms of thinking about the text as one comes to it as a reader, as it has multiple parts, text that uh, that you, as you say, you, you borrow or use from from other people. Vicki Hearn uh, is one, of course. And then obviously there are I Ching pieces in there as well. And then personal footnotes, right? Those are personal? Yep. Yeah. It's, I mean, yeah. I, I never want to assume those, those That's things. Right. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they seem personal. Um, they didn't need to be personal, but you wrote them as personal. So I, I made the assumption. So often what we hear from authority are monologues. When a dog first learns sit as a story, it's often about power, bribery. It's still one way. In other words, she appears to obey, but nothing's being said. One day, the dog sits all on her own, not just sitting around, but sitting in the manner of speaking. And if her command of language is respected, she's heard. Vicky wrote of Goering the head of the Humane Society in Nazi Germany, making a radio announcement in 1933 that, in order that animal torturing shall not continue, I have now stepped in and will commit to concentration camps those who still think that they can continue to treat animals as inanimate property. The speech was ostensibly about vivisection, but more than that, it legitimized killing vicious or degenerate, mainly Jewish, scientists. Hearn uses Goering to show how displays of kindness can hide whole heaps of cruelty. Bandit's action was considered sufficiently criminal to warrant his death, what the people for the ethical treatment of animals labeled a sad necessity. She points out that in the Republic, Plato considered dogs most able to locate and guard the just city, while for providing the wrong sort of training, the poets were dismissed. But poetry is like Bandit in that it has no power over the state. And because it has no power over the state, it has no allegiance to the state, at least not under the conception of the state invoked by the word democracy. 
the conception that creates the fiction of the state obeying its citizens through the vote, as well as of citizens obeying the fictions of the state. So first, let's let's talk about that as as a, a kind of method or a form. Now, it's a, it's like um, how you feel reading and then writing about her reading and writing about you know parts of what she thinks about while she's reading. It's not always reading, but yeah. but books are often involved, which okay. is funny because I often have experiences and then I and then I make sense of them through reading. Mm, okay. uh, and that piece is actually a good example of that, where the three different. The, it's a braid. And yes, you're right. The three different uh, strands of the braid. One is my experience working with Vicki Hearn directly, which I did as an animal trainer. Um, and the kind of lessons that I learned as a person about myself and my relationship to, at that point, my dog, Lila. Um, and just how powerful and humbling it was to work with someone with a philosophical and a poetic mind about something so tangible as as dog training. Hmm. And the reason I had sought her out was because I was so attracted to that philosophical basis, how philosophy like that enacts itself in real life. And I found that to be such a powerful time for me. And so the I Ching simultaneously, my, I wasn't really a reader really growing up. And, the, and, and I, as I say in that piece, like my first real relationship, ironically, was in some ways with the I Ching as a book, which became a very practical source of well, both frustration and mystery and wisdom. Um, but the book, uh, was, I was having this experience where I was constantly coming to a part where it was sort of telling me youthful folly, youthful folly. And I was not humble. I couldn't figure out the humility that the piece was talking about. I also was beginning a sort of Buddhist practice at the time. And so the idea of sitting, and then of course the command sit uh, when you're working with dog training and, and what it means to command or even expect collaboration from an animal. So a lot of this was going on. And then I, so I was thinking through that. Hmm. Um, I do use uh, a lot of her work, a bandit in that piece only, but partly because it connects to the Conrad Lorenz piece in there where there's a sort of criminalization. I've, I've been very interested, of course, since working with Vicky on how the criminal system works with animals. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is author Talia Field, and our show is Captivating Fictions, about the way normative stories, whether told as fiction or science or religion or history, work to oppress other ways of thinking and imagining and create justifications for unforgivable acts of cruelty. Um, I do have a tendency to seek out exposure of villains. And again, it, maybe it's the wrong thing to say, but uh, as you mentioned, the, the piece on Conrad Lorenz, that's an exposure of a problematic personality who, like, I think, Claude Bernard in your novel, can I call it a novel? Yeah. Okay, yep. thank you. Okay, good. Uh, in your novel, Experimental Animals, it just presents as a uh, an entangle. What is this? Is this an, a Gordian knot situation where we, tr- yeah. Yeah, yeah, where we try to untangle what's good, what's not, what what came out of it that's good. What you know is is the good tainted by what's so terrible about it all? All these questions are sort of wrapped into these pieces. Uh, Vicky Hearn, uh, that piece asks us to think about how animals and people communicate or don't communicate, and how we miscommunicate, and how we don't respect the that the animal communicates and Conrad Lorenz is a you know well respected probably even loved by many people um, for his work on uh, basically behaviorism right trying to 
uh, attach patterns of action that you could analogize to human action as well. Animals are like humans. Humans are like animals. Um, tell us a little bit about Lorenz, if you don't mind, uh, and, and we can set up that piece. Right. So Vicky was all about a certain syntax or the sort of grammar of meaning and relationships. And she was really about how there has to be a kind of coherence to authority. And that language is a form of authority. And if you're not coherent in how you're communicating, then animals respond to that incoherence. And that's where you get things like a bite. Chapter one. Stand on the bridge between lung and matter, on a boat handled by Charon, between stalling and starting. Bacteria, we know you as you wiggle in our thoughts, a compass in the head leading to the spoil, the scroll. Proverbs 8.27, when he established the heavens, I was there, when he set a compass upon the face of the depth. This compass, the man in his ignorance of the world heaping around him, agony and ecstasy his narrow experience, a wiggle he defines by ignoring bacteria even as they evolve under his tongue. Okay, that's not quite true. William Blake couldn't have known that things as small as bacteria or atoms could pass between larger mortal barricades. William Blake couldn't decide which was worse, to read the scroll and stare at the compass, or punish the sins and steer without stars. Or the third way, to fall into transformed parts, give up these choices and become a deity, a rot diet. There is only me to eat, and there you are, said William Blake, saintly heretic. Proverbs 8.36, all they that hate me love death. In the loss of a brother, there vibrates a yellow-green border. Brother slips on the fetid mud of the shore, coin in hand. We all lose brothers between fingers and clouds. Angels he thought he saw writhing in a tree became angels he knew. They came unexplained and unscientific. Roots imagine a compost. There is no philosophy in the material, but endless material. In other words, entropy is kept low because there is something outside us to take our trash. This is more than a clever game. Brothers who have died provide a thin, vulgar layer that supports life. In the radioactive, there is energy bent in the wrong direction and new loss. But there's a story that will steer the dead back toward us or grant access to the dark matter between planets, thoughts, the atmosphere which allows travel or transference between orbiting masses. Dead brothers are as common as death. And what's not to love in death? Lorenz and Bernard were, are both, you know, fathers of, right? Lorenz is sort of the father of animal behavior, and Bernard is like the father of uh, physiology, right, or experimental medicine. I was a student of the history of science, is really one of the things that I was most uh, involved in studying, and I was always amazed that we would hear about the, these fathers of X or Y without really understanding the complexity of who they were. Mm -hmm. um, and in both cases, uh, I was very interested in looking further into them and found uh, really through my research that, in fact, I really found that their science was extraordinarily problematic, that they really weren't heroes. I, I would have a hard time calling them heroes on any level. And um, in fact, their findings, because their, their processes were so problematic, their findings are actually mostly irrelevant mm -hmm. today. They actually didn't make discoveries that were that meaningful. 
or that have endured. Um, but yet, especially Claude Bernard in France, I mean, he's a national hero. There's a million streets named after him, statues, you know, um, but, but his, the power of his work was so compromised by his process and his method. So this is one of those places where I was entangled when I was working on the two of them. So I pulled the Lorenz piece out really because I was so interested in his storytelling. He basically tells stories, Mm -hmm. but it's not very scientific. Um, And of course, because he was a Nazi sympathizer, you end up with these very bizarre views of humanity through the lens of animals. He, He kind of really uses animals to talk about people. And I wanted to get into the meat and grit of what's happening at the storytelling level with his use of analogy in particular. You know, again, you hit on some some important themes of your work, right? Storytelling, narrative, in a way, I suppose, how it tyrannizes us as readers or writers as well. We're sort of stuck in these particular ways we read things and the ways that things are written uh, as you as you say already can can hide the you know other other stories or other facts or, or things of that nature so uh, how we tell stories and how we recognize stories um, are a, a very important part of your work as well exactly that's actually probably a through line if you go all the way back to my first books like point in line even though they weren't explicitly about animals such per se they really were about sort of the story we tell about ourselves who we are what is a self where do we begin and end <laughs> you know kind right. of how are we only one story? Why aren't we 50 stories? So those questions have um, definitely obsessed me for a very long time. <laughs> right. I like that very much. I like um, the problem that is Conrad Lorenz, which you you kind of answer him, right, with um, Heine Hedwig? Is that... Heine Hedegaard, yeah, who was a, a very important man in sort of... Um, the, the burgeoning field of sort of almost, uh, uh, I think it's like semiotic, bio-semiotics bio mm. now. I don't quite know where that field has gone, but it's really about the meaning-making of animals, um, which ties in a bit to, to Vicki Hearn, of course. Right. And he was really one of the first people who, unlike Lorenz, really didn't look particularly, I mean, he would have been appalled at the level of captivity, for example, that a lot of Lorenz's animals were in. Um, and he really studied the condition of captivity, which... Um, uh, you know, again, I sort of touch on it in Bird Lovers, but of course, I come back to it in a very big way in personhood. Right. So I'm interested. I was always very interested in in his early work in that period on on really making zoos um, a less torturous environment mm. and the artificiality of looking at animal behavior and captivity as as indicative of anything except pathology. Right, right. And I thought, and I think that's a very important point. It is, and it's it's a it's a fascinating one, really, in terms of all experiment, all medicine, and the, you know the idea that these laboratory experiments are indicative of laboratory experiments. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that you couldn't you couldn't take them anywhere else. Um, exactly. And that mm-hmm. you know it struck me as a strong part of the the Hedegar, you know, response to these, these are animals, uh, non-human animals that are sort of warped into the human space in a lot of ways and, and how they have to uh, navigate that. Yeah, that the word warping is perfect. You know, the kind of stereotype behavior, all of the very, very troubling things you witness in animals who are in captivity. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is a form of torture. You know, that leads, of course, to my interest in, in the experimental animal storyline, which mm-hmm. is really the rise of the laboratory as a phenomenon. And because it, it's so prevalent in our lives today, but, you know, people, I think, think of it as a very natural part of our culture, but right. in fact, it has a very particular origin story. And I was very interested in what that story was and the, and the narrative structure that had to be built up to allow it to exist and to grow in the, in the forms that it has. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's a, that's a very good point about how both laboratories, zoos, all of these extraordinarily artificial environments don't tell us much about animals um, 
except the bias of the of the scientist. <laughs> right. Disobedience seems like a yes or no answer to an easy question. Children break rules, teenagers break rules, middle-aged women break rules. In fact, there's likely not a living creature who hasn't disobeyed some rules. The story of God's garden follows in kind, a false conflict between freedom and survival. The wild creature says, bite, you will not die. But the God says, oh yes you will. Adam instantly sees that the rules are mere tricks and nonsense made up by an easily frightened man. It's not eternity, but mortality that's bliss. Fruit rots sweet and falls apart, revealing the seeds it evolved to carry. There is no death in mortality. Springtime in captivity and one or two birds on rare occasion may bond in the sanctuary. They scrounge scraps into a makeshift nest. But there's no encouraging brooding, because what follows would be a clutch, and that would be too devastating, even deadly. In a nest hidden well enough to evade dismantling, the eggs are removed and boiled, put back dead. There's a reason broodiness is selected out from domestic birds. Farmers want productivity to prevail over family. Domestication eliminates claims to privacy, a life cycle de facto and de jure already spoken for. But captive wild animals do not accept punishment in response to bites and hiding. Those are wild ways, not wrong ones. God tries to deny Adam the wild right to deceive. The Claude Bernard story begins to undo you know, the sort of national heroes, but also the idea of how things are properly done by humans. Like science itself, it seems to, like I walk around my, my neighborhood, right? It's like science is real. There are people right. trying to sort of put a flag in their yard that says, we believe in science, <laughs> right? But Claude Bernard is science. Right. But you totally, to me, you totally destroy him. The idea of a guy being that awful as you know, and it being normalized, this is a book really about sort of the rise of vivisection and, and the, the rise of anti-vivisection, I suppose, the expression against this kind of cruelty. But it's, it's an expression against the science as an idea that comes out of this kind of work as well. So I, I do like that it's sort of exploding that. So tell us a little bit more about Claude Bernard, because I'm doing a radio show that's like one of Talia Field's books by never giving anyone any clue what we're talking about. <laughs> And, I, you know, again, the, the human absurdity at the center of all of our bizarre narcissism always makes me laugh. Yeah. And I think I try to, you know, I try to really emphasize that humor everywhere I can, because to me, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's so absurd yeah. um, how much we believe our own minds and our own stories. Yeah, Bernard was a big hero. I mean, he I went to high school in France. And I mean, you couldn't pass the day without hearing about Claude Bernard. Hmm. Funnily, and now the students, he is no longer on the baccalaureate reading list. He hmm. was when I was there. Um, you know, so he has fallen away because again, his torturous methods didn't actually result in a lot of good science. Um, but that it took forever for that to kind of work its way out. He was the first person given a state funeral as a scientist in France. Um, and really, it was the invention of the scientist as the national hero, as, as a cultural, you know, and scientists at the time were really trying to divorce themselves from politics, from the church, 
you know, and I, a lot of this I cover in my book and they really collaborated with the state mm-hmm. to protect their practices and, 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 and have this appearance of science is neutral, science is above the fray. There's no politics. Nobody from no, no lay person should ever judge what science does. Right. Um, all of that legacy of all of that kind of um, hyper protectionism of science that states and laws and everybody does is it comes from that period of time. So I was very interested in looking at how we've landed where we are today, where it's basically an industrial complex, you know, the animal killing industrial complex of of science. And I, and I didn't really understand where that had come from. And I was curious what the storyline was, because as you keep mentioning, it's not just, you know, stories like philosophies are not sort of, um, they're not neutral in terms of their impact. We really tend to, I think, as people live the stories we believe in. And so it matters what stories we tell and are told and believe. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is author Talia Field, and our show is Captivating Fictions, about the way normative stories, whether told as fiction or science or religion or history, work to oppress other ways of thinking and imagining and create justifications for unforgivable acts of cruelty. One thing um, that we talked about with Jeff Sebo is just the, the sort of, I think, the understanding now that people have at least begun to recognize, you know, the torturousness of, of so many of these animal industries, right, and and how they're often hidden from view. Your book, to me, rescues the animal, and I know you said there's no animal voice here, but in some ways, um, the descriptions of what, what are done to the animals, um, dogs in particular, uh, that, you know, the practice of cutting a particular vocal cord or vocal nerve uh, so that the animal doesn't cry out. Um, The practice of using curare, which basically paralyzes. uh, Yep, and silences. Curare comes from lianus trees, the bark boiled to a tar. Claude collects the jars and explores stories, beginning with Sir Walter Raleigh and the arrows of hardwood tipped with reeds and fastened with waxed cotton. Into a hole, a poisoned piece of wood is placed. Claude's red notebook. When the brain of a frog is removed, it becomes much more difficult to poison with curare. Why? After hundreds of experiments in which animals become paralyzed and yet continue to live, Claude realizes that this poison acts neither on the brain nor on the motor nerves, but on their connection. With curare, no agony. Life seems extinguished, but, Claude pretends astonishment, this is not to be. Appearances deceive. This death, which seems so free of pain, is actually accompanied by sufferings more atrocious than the imagination can invent. The victim is not deprived of sensation or intelligence, but only of the means of expressing these through movement. Maybe these apple-like fruits were what poisoned the insubordinate Eve, her jaw slackening without a scream. Curare offers the chance to enter this living machine, this theater of detrimental actions that we will define for you and explain. The heart still beating, the blood still turns red in the air. Of course, the animal feels every poke and jolt without a way to cry. Claude, what morality says we can't do to those like us? Science authorizes us to do to the animals. As too often happens at night in my room, dread freezes my body. Then the bed, apartment, the streets as I picture them, the wider city, the countryside, the heavens, everything is stranded and still until a raspy whine pulls me to a rabbit in a box in the kitchen. She's cut practically in half and relaxes into death when touched on the head. What kind of greeting is this, I think, holding her paw? Claude's red notebook. 
rabbits lose their sugar when they are varnished. Would it be the same if their spinal cords were cut at the same time? I sense if you stare long enough into darkness, you begin to see shapes. The next night, as my eyes squeeze shut against the wailing from a nearby basement, I lift myself to the window. If I bear these tests willingly and move toward the pitiable howls, then it be done unto me according to thy word. If I resist this or act unwillingly, my load will only expand. And if I put it down and refuse, for sure, only worse things may come. Why is it all so hidden? So experimental animals tells of, of the time when it wasn't hidden. Right. You know, where this where this particular there was no laboratory behind the eight foot walls, behind the security cameras and the gates and the this and the that, and the laws in particular now. Hmm. But you know, at the time it was it was the radical form of science. And so it was in it was in basements, it was in stairways, and, and the animals screaming all the time in pain, and they would save these animals and keep them alive to the next day. And you know, and the, and so it agitated. The public, if we, if even for five minutes, we heard what's going on in a laboratory today, nobody could sit and abide it. Nobody, I don't believe anybody could, because I don't think you could hear that much pain and not want to act. Mm. And at the time, that's really what drove a lot of these women, a lot of the, it was the beginning of, you know, anti-cruelty societies, anti-cruelty laws, because people saw it everywhere around them. Horses in the street were being beaten. You know, it was just a kind of constant animal frenzy of pain. And I think that um, it's interesting to look back at that time when it was when it, things were just getting started before they've hardened into the invisibility that we live with now. Mm. It, it, you know, ag gag laws and you know all the terrible ways in which we keep people from knowing what's done in our name. And that's one of the arguments that a lot of the women in the in experimental animals made. Frances Cobb, Anna Kingsford. I mean, there's some hero women in that book mm -hmm. who really, really went to battle against this new science. They didn't believe that anything could come out of this kind of level of torture. But of course, the narrative became, well, those are hysterical women right. and people are hysterical, uh, you know, and they shouldn't critique science because they don't understand what comes out of it. Right. But, you know, Claude Bernard didn't even believe in germ theory. I mean, he was incredibly backward um, in a lot of ways. But that narrative of like, well, you're if you're against animal experimentation, then you're a hysteric. It's it's a it's a way to diminish an argument. Yeah. So I'm not interested in putting myself in the middle of that argument. Right. I am interested in the in the storylines of that argument and how it's been so lopsided. That's what I'm interested yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. You know, making the point that there often aren't voices of those women either, and if they're not, if Fanny's voice isn't heard as as you know someone obstructing Claude Bernard. Um, she's heard as like a harpy. There's the idea that she's ruined Claude Bernard's life in a lot of ways, or, you know, that she's a, ter a terrible wife, right? She's not yeah. the right kind of wife. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, those things are, are how women are depicted as well. So your book does a, a good job really of sort of displaying the way that has been manipulated as well or used to, to tell these stories. Um, again, I thought of Nietzsche because didn't he, like his, his bout of final insanity was like trying to stop someone from beating a horse? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of, 
of people, I mean, I, I tell this story because in the Victor Hugo, I found so right. many, you know, little tiny references to Victor Hugo's participation in the anti-vivisection movement. When I went to the official Victor Hugo archives, they, they rejected my findings completely. Oh, no, he never had anything to do with that. Wow. Um, and I, even though I had his signature on things, they were like, no, no, there's no way. That's the other Victor Hugo. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very common name. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> nice. Well, it's good to know that they're continuing to keep the smoke screens going. Oh yeah. 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 To save your heroes. What's wrong with being anti-vivisectionist? Like again, you've already said it. Like if you're against science doing these things, you're against helping humanity. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's all there is to it. You can't look at the facts or how eff- efficacious something is, or whether you know. I mean, this is why um, you know Stephen Johnson. I, I'm a very big fan of him because he his project as a science writer is always to show the kinds of alternative narratives that have led us to the sort of health successes that we've had. Um, he really shows that like epidemiology and, and vaccines and, you know, sort of public health efforts, hygiene, these are the things that have made it in some ways more tangible difference yeah, yeah. Um, than this kind of bench science that came out of especially that particular period of time. Anna Kingsford. Very shortly after my entry as a student at the Paris Medical School, and when as yet I was new to the horrors of the vivisectional method, I was one morning while studying alone in the Natural History Museum suddenly disturbed by a frightful burst of screams of a character more distressing than words can convey, proceeding from some chamber or another on another side of the building. I called the porter in charge of the museum and asked him what it meant. He replied with a grin, It's only the dogs being vivisected in the laboratory. I expressed my horror and he retorted, scrutinizing me with surprise and amusement, for he could never have heard a student speak of vivisection in such terms. What do you want? It's for science. Therefore he left me and I sat down alone and listened. As much as I had heard and said and even written before that date about vivisection, I found myself for the first time in its actual presence. And there swept over me a wave of such extreme mental anguish that my heart stood still under it. It seemed as if suddenly all the laboratories of torture throughout Christendom stood open before me with their manifold, unutterable agonies exposed and the awful future the atheistic science was everywhere making for the world rose up and stared me in the face. Then and there, burying my face in my hands, with tears of agony, I prayed for strength and courage to labor effectively for the abolition of so vile a wrong and to do at least what one heart and one voice might to root this curse of torture from the land. When you visit him to speak out, the chief of the University of Paris Hospital, Léon Lefeur, argues that vivisection is necessary as a protest on behalf of the independence of science against the interference of clerics and moralists. When all the world has reached to the high intellectual level of France and no longer believes in God, the soul, moral responsibility, or any nonsense of that kind, but makes practical utility the only rule of conduct, then, and not until then, can science afford to dispense with vivisection. To refute the vitalists and to display the animal machine, your professor, de Lenessa, shows the beating of a fish's heart, grafting of a rat's paw, decapitation of a dog, development of a tadpole's tail, all continuing after the deaths of the original creatures. Original creatures? You laugh, looking around. What does that mean? Now I feel like I'm going to say these things and I'm going to get attacked. Um, you know, I was really looking at um, very particularly that story 
I'm not an academic and I'm not like someone who wants to argue these points in a wider context. I actually really try to use the artwork I'm making mm -hmm. to bring these stories to light in the way that I have really thoroughly researched them and can stand behind that. Right, right. Um, I don't feel like I'm comfortable with someone. I'm not just going to write articles about it. I don't write anything else about it. I don't talk about it publicly in mm. some other way. I got you. I, I'm really interested in the stories, the arguments, where we end up stuck, why, where's our narrative sure. dead ends, you know, yeah, I get it. I get it. I mean, but in some ways, I, as you mentioned, Hugo, you begin with Hugo's consideration of John Brown. Right. Um, and you end with John Brown on some, like close to the yeah. end as well, right? So you've got John Brown bookending the book. Yeah. Right? So that's that's your choice as, a, as someone trying to convey a particular story. Right. Um, and that's actually partly because, I mean, he doesn't quite, it's not the very, very last, but you're right. And it, it's partly because that's what I found when I was doing the research. I didn't, um, that, that the, the, that movement, the abolitionist movement coming out of America mm -hmm. at the time was such an inspiration for a lot of the movements that emerged in England and France. Mm. Um, and so, uh, and John Brown was an enormous hero uh, or figure, I should say, right. um, in France at that time. And it was really because of that, how much I saw it come up again and again and again, hmm. um, that I felt comfortable using it. You also note how some of the women, I think it may be Kingsford, who sort of, uh, my, for lack of a better term, sort of undercuts her own authority by being, you know, one of the people who believe in seances and things like that, right? Well, and also, again, it's, it plays it, how the sexism works, mm -hmm, right? Like right. she, her her alternative beliefs, her her beliefs in dreams, her just the way in which logic and narrative and, and, and ethics, mm. really ethics, work for her, she's diminished and sort of um, sidelined. Right. Um, whereas ethical considerations are overtly put aside by the scientists. I mean, they have many, many examples of places where in the storyline, they, they advance their own stories by saying that ethics don't matter. And scientific ethics are different and no one should weigh in on them except experts. We see it today. We hear a lot of the same logic. That was so surprising to me when I researched this is mm. how contemporary yeah. so much of it sounds. Yeah. Obviously, many of the themes that we touched on already are in personhood. You know, opening the book with, uh, with High Adam, even more than like reading about vivisection, and, and even though it's very clear in experimental animals what's happening, yeah, you kind of know what's going on, but it's not like it's graphic. Weirdly, I'd say, you know, High Adam is graphic in its exposure, in, in its sort of, um, not discussion, but its narration of the pain that's visited mm -hmm. on birds. And the big guy said, let there be a living room. And then the guy separated the living room from the kitchen, and he saw that this was good. So he said, let a garage go off the kitchen. And this was good. So the guy said, let's fence in some grass and add a few hydrangeas. He saw that these were good, and these are the generations of X. And the guy said, let us have a pet to amuse us indoors. So he bought an illegally smuggled wild-caught pet store parrot and named it Adam and saw that it was good. And the guy and his wife begat two children and said, let us talk to Adam when funny and cute and ignore Adam when the television's on. And the children wanted to let Adam out of the cage, so the guy said, let the living room not be covered in shit, and it was not so good. And there were years, and there were vacations, and there were nights and days, and the guy and his wife and two children saw that Adam only liked one of them now, and bit the rest if they come into the room, and screamed all the time and plucked her feathers out. Then the neighbors complained, and the guy said, let Adam live in the basement where no one can hear. 
and Adam was not in their image. And the big guy got angry because the screams and the bloody biting were upsetting the family. Banishing the bird to the basement was not enough, so he said, let Adam go forth from the house and mateless and heartbroken will be his days. It seemed like that's all there was these days. The biters, the screamers, liars, and those who couldn't follow simple rules. So it came upon everything that the guy said, Lo, I am going to destroy them, said the guy, along with the earth. But the guy's son Noah was a good boy, and of a kind who had learned over the generations how to be docile, to listen to the guy's orders, to follow the rules, and never bite or hide, lie, steal, or fly away. Only Noah, the good boy, would survive. This time we're going to do it right, said the guy. This time no garden, no fruit, no talking snake. This time it's all surveillance from the get-go, all stage set and props. Flood the planet, start with that. Then we'll get to a good houseboat with cement rooms and nine-gauge steel and good old Noah to steer us to Mars. No more bountiful growth, no more florid ecstasies set among unique forms of life. All will be spaceship and robots and short-snouted, floppy-eared, baby-faced customers. With you, my beloved pets, I shall make my zoo and covenant. You shall live in cages two by two under video and LED. The pairs will bond and mate in captivity or not at all. Thus it was Noah that did all that. He did everything the big guy commanded. And he named and paired off pets. And lo, as the waters swelled and churned and rose up over the mountains, there was only one face upon the earth. So that that piece, obviously, it's infused with a bit of Vicky mm-hmm. Hearn because, of course, Adam. Adam was th- this piece very much based on my experience working at this particular shelter, mm-hmm. which is called Foster Parrots, the New England Wildlife Sanctuary. Uh, they just unfortunately had an enormous fire. I don't even know if I can say this. You know, all of the cockatoos but one have perished. Oh. Um, so I worked in the cockatoo wing. Mm-hmm. Um And that's mostly the characters, most of them. There's some macaws, of course, in that piece as well. But these are real people to me. I mean, it was like, you know, they lost about 80 birds um, Mm. out of maybe 300. um, But still, it was the whole cockatoo wing, except Mm. one. Mm. So there's a piece. So this happened just very, very recently. The the very frontest piece of the book is a bird named Poppy. And of course, at the very back of the book is a bird named Lightning on a very back cover waving. Not only is it difficult to have suffered with these birds their lives, but now it's a, it's a bit of an elegy piece, which makes me even sadder. The situation that we put captive animals in is unforgivable yeah. to me. The justifications, the stories we tell, it's all not okay. And I, that's why the Adam, going back to the biblical story, this is so baked into the Judeo-Christian tradition. In Adam, there's the Christian tradition. And even in Happy, you know, I take Buddhism to task on the way that animals are are narrated in Buddhism. So I think that our problems go very, very deep when it comes to our relationship to these wild animals. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is author Talia Field, and our show is Captivating Fictions, about the way normative stories, whether told as fiction or science or religion or history, work to oppress other ways of thinking and imagining and create justifications for unforgivable acts of cruelty. We're not aware of parakeets and their, their habits as beings, right? They're birds. You know, that's what we do with these, do these categories, right? They're dogs, they're birds, they're monkeys, they're... Um, and, you know, each bird is unique in its living, 
and it's kind of fascinating to re- to read it and not realize how emotional one can get when one thinks about the the acts of birds who are damaged by relations with humans uh, and how they respond to it, how they harm themselves to try to speak. Yeah, the ways in which silence and pain go together or mm. speech and pain and, and the idea of symptoms, like so much of what language as a surface symptom of so many other kinds of situations. I think that's something that I, I use in a lot. Of, I try to use in a lot of different uh, versions of, of the stories of different stories. Mm-hmm the suffering of being captive or being oppressed or being in a condition that one can't control or confined and not being able to communicate properly. I think that's, that's what we see in the zoos. And that's, we, I've been so fascinated with the, with that, the reading of those symptoms by some people and the complete negation of them by others. Do you want to tell a little bit about your own relationship with the non-human rights project? Yeah, when I um, published Experimental Animals, we had a book launch party in New York that was a benefit for uh, non-human rights projects. Mm. So actually, my relationship to them has, well, I've been a fan for years, um, but I actually, even when Experimental Animals came out, I already had sort of, you know, sort of dedicated a lot of my effort towards supporting them. Similarly to sort of bird lovers, there was pieces already in progress, and those pieces have accumulated into pers- into the collection that is personhood. The happy piece, you know, I really wanted to think through that case about how what what other kind of storylines are involved with how we think about elephants and how we think about um, this kind of relationship to the self and the mirror the mirror test that was used uh, so prevalently in that case, mm-hmm. like what, and I wanted to just sort of tease out some of the more literary and, and sort of uh, narrative themes um, in that. And also this idea of habeas corpus itself, a little bit of the history of that and how it has been expanded in a lot of other countries, not habeas corpus, but the, co- the idea of personhood mm-hmm. to apply to things like rivers and mountains, you know, that we're not even talking about humans and animals when we're talking about personhood right. legally. There is a movement, I'm sure you're aware of it, like sort of beinghood, right? Like, a, you know, I, I know that personhood is such an ingrained legal category. But in my book, I really try to explore not just, not just the legal category, but why we are humanly so involved with this idea of, of who our person is, a personality. And, and I think the different pieces in the collection are trying to aim at very different ways to approach where the boundaries of that question are. Are you saying that maybe Happy is unhappy in the Bronx Zoo? Mr. Wise, yes. The question is not whether the Bronx Zoo is treating her well, or whether it's not treating her well, or whether they are giving her medical care or they are not. The question is whether or not Happy should be confined there at all. Non-human animals mostly have one actual right in America to be the recipients of trusts. So, Mr. Wise argues, let's add a second simple right, to not be arbitrarily confined. The Supreme Court already says you can't look at a single characteristic and deprive an entity of all the rights because of a single characteristic. Happy is an elephant. That's a single characteristic. On the mirror stage. But the mirror splits an object from oneself to own the potential elusive person like a piece of furniture, 
a king among things to be seen and sat on, to be cared for, but also to uphold yourself and do your duty, including to be marked or ridden if necessary, to be sold or sturdy or perhaps skinned or stuffed if necessary, to see oneself as others do, to be humbled, in other words, as a reflection of a world that would claim to name you, to ask you to please remove that mark, to prove yourself, to make something of yourself, a mental representation begging the question of if you have an eye to see with it, or one to know yourself with your eyes, this external whole that sums up and idealizes what you might see of yourself, but always first a set of characteristics defined by relations and tests of tests of how one perceives oneself through other eyes. Mr. Wise. In 2005, Happy became the first elephant to pass the mirror self-recognition test, considered to be the true indicator of an animal's self-awareness, and thought to correlate with higher forms of empathy and altruistic behavior. Staring at our reflections has also been linked to starvation and death, Narcissus. Mr. Wise, one who understands the concept of dying and death must possess a sense of self. Both chimpanzees and elephants demonstrate an awareness of death, by reacting to dead family or group members. Having a mental representation of the self, which is a prerequisite for mirror self-recognition, likely confers an ability to comprehend death. It's one of the questions I have with Jeff Sebo is like trying to understand how mirror recognition or you know recognizing the self in a, in a mirror becomes a, a kind of way in which you thinks uh, think a creature has meaning or mat- should matter like to humans or as humans do right like a, a human deciding on a test that makes you more like a human or you know right. I, I, I feel like I both represent what the test is because right. I again I never want to not represent uh, the truth of, of what somebody's intention is right. for them right and mm-hmm. so there's the intention of what that test is and it is symbolic because it has been used in these very symbolic ways. I do, I think, also go into why the sort of the underlying absurdity of a mirror, right. which is such a weirdly human, I mean, the, going back to the story of Narcissus right, and right. the history of mirrors and what it is to be a, a, a mirror object, to be an object to yourself. Um, and then I talk, of course, about the master-slave dialectic and other kinds of things that that are related to our concept of mirroring, um, even mirror neurons as an empath- empathic response. But but yeah, it's, a, it's an odd... I agree. I mean, I think this goes back to animal behavior in general. I think we, you know, all of the tests we set up for animals are really on the face extraordinarily absurd. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is author Talia Field, and our show is Captivating Fictions about the way normative stories, whether told as fiction or science or religion or history, work to oppress other ways of thinking and imagining and create justifications for unforgivable acts of cruelty. There's not just the animal world in here, but uh, there's, you know, tumbleweeds in here. The idea of invasive species or the humans who decide what's invasive species as well is an interesting thing to expose or to think about also. Do you you want to talk about that at all? Yeah, there's a great, um, I was just had a wonderful conversation. There's a great young philosopher, David Frank, and he focuses a lot on invasive species ethics. Mm -hmm. And and so um, we were having a great laugh over the fact that, you you know, there's so, this this is a tangle of narratives like like no one's business yeah. 
Um, you know, you do one thing to solve one problem and you create five other problems. Yeah. And, you know, what ab- and what is the original that makes something invasive? And what is, you know, to get back to what original are we talking about and where? And so that's why I talk about even maps and, and names of countries. And it's such a, there's so much arbitrary discourse in the question of invasive species right. ethics and biology. Um, and I, so I tried to kind of, that's why I called it a vaudeville. Um, well, it's called, you know, turns before the curtain, but right. the implication is it's a bit of a vaudeville. And we put ourselves in this kind of position of the audience, like, oh, sh- oh shucks, oh shucks, <laughs> right. you know, oh no, here's some feral pigs. Oh no, there's a tumbleweed. Like as though there's no participation on our part right. often of, you know, of what's happening. It's a, it's an incredibly interesting and fascinating topic to me. This this is a very abridged version of my thinking on it. I wouldn't be surprised if I come back to it in a longer form. Um, but I do find I do find the question of invasive species, the ethics of it, to be quite fascinating. Do you eradicate things? Well, then what's the, that's like essentially a holocaust, right? Mm-hmm. And it and it really asks questions about individuals versus populations. You know, you would never do one thing to an individual, but can you do it to a whole population? Yeah. Well, whose pain and suffering are we to prioritize, right? Like why would we get rid of feral pigs who are perfectly intelligent, wonderful, sentient creatures to protect, you know, this farmer or that field of, of crops? You know, we get into very dicey territory very quickly. And so I, I'm fascinated by, of course, from my point of view, how all these stories land in a huge jumble and a tangle and then get stuck. Yeah. Well, you, you demonstrated a bit um, in your, what I think is a more personal piece in, in the book, right, on the health of your stream, you're, you're actually in, you know, being invasive yourself there. I, I say that in every book, there's one part which is personal, yeah. only usually ever one, and, and then you picked out in this book, that piece. Um, yeah, it's really about the pathetic fallacy, how we, which I think is at the heart of a lot of it. Are we anthropomorphizing? Is that a good thing? How, or or it, do, do we end up sort of seeing the story so much on our own terms that we are blind to sort of our impact um, outside of our, our own heroic storyline? So that, yeah, it's a, it's a self-conscious example in that story of of my participation as a as an actor in a story, not really even cognizant of of what story I'm playing out. Right, right. Uh, your story was important to you and and your actions in it, right? You, right. The, the key to the to thinking about the fish in your pond or, or your stream was that it's you that's thinking about them, <laughs> right? That exactly. that you're yeah, exactly. you're the one telling the story. The fish aren't telling the story. You are exactly yeah, right? exactly. Yes, it's very pathetic. I love that it's a pathetic policy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, which at the time, of course, that's not what it meant originally and stuff. But it, you know, but it's a. It's a foible. It's a narrative foible. It's a human foible. Uh, and it's what lands us in a lot of actions that are questionable. So, yeah, yeah I like in, in one section, you, you end it with, is it a healthy stream? I didn't think to ask. Yeah, right. right. I am very involved in now in the sort of Northeast woods kind of ecology. And I've been watching a number of fledging bird families mm-hmm. in the last few weeks. And, you know, you become quite aware of what they have to eat or don't right, right. and how the weather impacts that and the species that they have evolved to eat right. or the, the the kind of environment in which they can thrive, you know, and you realize like, oh, yeah, in fact, this invasive shrub that's taken over half the woods here, that's preventing other native sure. plants growing and having a direct impact on the migratory birds. And so, you know, it's it's this is what I mean about there's right. like 
really a hundred stories all entangled here. And I think the ethics of it is really quite fascinating. I, I think it's uh, Rachel Carson in Silent Spring, who is, you know, basically, you know, trying to hammer home the point of this, of the harm we are doing via uh, chemistry, basically, you know, the chemical harm we've been doing or had been or continue to do. And she asserts this, I think, at some point in the book, that there is a right way to intervene. It seemed like the whole book, she was telling us that you know, this kind of human intervention tends to have unintended consequences, uh, tends to lead to people making decisions that don't have any clue about what's going on, tends to lead to people applying toxins who don't care about the toxins. They're just doing a job. Um, and then thinking about, well, who are these people who are making the right decisions to intervene? Um, which, again, seems to be part of everything that I've read of yours. So, yeah. so uh, you know, is this question of the, the sort of the right to intervene? Well, it's, it goes back a little to a kind of Buddhist idea that you, philosophy is only as good as the moment in which you make a decision about what's right to do. You know, having an idea about what's right to do doesn't work in every context, right? And, right. and so it's often our, it's our concepts of things that often dim our awareness, or as Vicky would say, it's a, it's, it's the language gets in the way of awareness. Mm. As a storyteller, a fundamental project of mine is to try to peel back to, to, by the excess of those stories or by exhausting them, do I really looking into all of the stories to come to a place where there's a different kind of sense of what can be done? What's right is often clearer, I think, than we think if we just pull away some of the overlays of, of stories that we, that we would rather rely on to make decisions about action. Descartes, from a letter to the Marquess of Newcastle, 1646. In fact, None of our external actions can show anyone who examines them that our body is not just a self-moving machine, but contains a soul with thoughts, with the exception of words or other signs that are relevant to particular topics without expressing any passion. I say words or other signs because deaf mutes use signs as we use spoken words, and I say that these signs must be relevant to exclude the speech of parrots without excluding the speech of madmen which is relevant to particular topics, even though it does not follow reason. I add also that these words or signs must not express any passion to rule out not only cries of joy or sadness, but also whatever can be taught by training to animals. Now, it seems to me very striking that the use of words so defined is something peculiar to human beings. Montaigne and Charon may have said that there is more difference between one human being and another than between a human being and an animal, but there has never been known an animal so perfect as to use a sign to make other animals understand something which expressed no passion. This seems to me a very strong argument to prove that the reason why animals do not speak as we do is not that they lack the organs, but that they have no thoughts. That's our show. Thanks to Talia Field for spending so much time with us and reading from her work. Field's most recent book is Personhood, just published and available from New Directions. You'll find an extended version of today's show online at wfhb.org, which includes a discussion of Emile Zola and his attempt to recreate in fiction the scientific methodology of the positivists and Claude Bernard. And support for Interchange comes from Limestone Post, an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas. In-depth stories about the arts, environment, social issues, and more. You can discover Limestone Post articles at limestonepost.com. And from Cardinal Spirits, located at 922 South Morton Street, Cardinal Spirits is an Indiana craft distillery in Bloomington, making whiskey, gin, vodka, rum, and liqueurs. 
Hours and more information online at cardinalspirits.com. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Cade Young is our executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. WFHB.